This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to The Economists. I'm Peter Martin. And my name is Gigi Foster. Hello. Gigi, you told me that you don't do anything in your spare time, but I know that you do because you found time to be a judge in a nudge-a-thon. <laughs> now, Gigi, what's a nudge-a-thon? Um, so, uh, first of all, Peter, I, I don't usually have spare time, and I wouldn't have considered my participation in the nudge-a-thon a, a spare time activity. Very much work, but fun. So, a nudge-a-thon is essentially based on the idea of a hackathon, where a lot of programmers get together and work to solve some sort of computing problem. I've, I've heard of a hackathon. Exactly. So, this is basically a, a hackathon, but to do with trying to solve a challenge that somehow is related to human behavior. So, it might be, for example, how do you get women of childbearing age to take folic acid prior to trying to conceive a child. You know, we know it's good for child development. We know that it prevents spina bifida, but a lot of women don't do it. That was actually the task of the first Nudgeathon that occurred in Britain in 2015, or in Australia here in Canberra, the Nudgeathon that I was judging at had the topic, how do we encourage consumers to choose and or to switch to better financial products? Who puts this on, Gigi? I'm asking that because I have a suspicion that there's some sort of big brother nature. <laughs> well, <laughs> I don't know if it's a big brother, but the office of the prime minister and cabinet, which I guess is pretty high up there, has a unit called Beta, which was set up under Malcolm Turnbull and it in collaboration. Let's say behavioral Beta. economics. Team of Australia. Uh-huh. B-E-T-A, which I guess you would pronounce beta, right, Peter? I, no, I would say beta. You, anyway, you say they, they, in collaboration with the Queensland um, Behavioral Economics Group, which is called CUBE, Q-U-B-E, run this nudgeathon. And in fact, the last one uh, that we had was this year. The first one ever was 2017. So it's a reasonably new phenomenon. That's our topic today. It might be an Orwellian topic. The topic of nudges, how the authorities experiment on us and try to manipulate us. Later we'll be joined by an official of the Prime Minister's Department who may or may not be trying to do just that. Not to me, not to me, that's nuts, that's nuts. Not to me, say no more, not to me. Definitions first. What do you mean? What's a nudge? Well, there's no formal definition of a nudge in economics. Uh, If you view economics, as I do, as one part creative intellectual pursuit and, and one part real world pragmatism, nudging lives mainly in the latter camp. So it's kind of what actually works to change behavior. And we say change behavior using certain insights about how people really make decisions. So some feature in the way that we think or make decisions that you can manipulate or you can you can use in setting up a, a setting such that people are more likely to make a choice that's in their best interests or that's in the best interests of the society at large. This is basically what marketers have done for years, trying to get you to buy their products, right? And, and they keep doing this. Money's poured into marketing activities, which is arguably market-based evidence that nudging works to some extent. So so what are some of these peculiarities? I mean, what one we see in supermarkets is that the stuff they want us to buy is at the right height. Sure, right? yep. But <laughs> what, what are some of the broader peculiarities that uh, can be put to good work? Well, I suppose to evil work sometimes by marketers and hopefully uh, good effect by governments. Well, I'll start by saying that behavioral economics can be conceptualized at the moment often as just a list of these sorts of peculiarities, Mm. regularities which seem to go against the traditional, classic, mainstream economic theory of atomistic individual behavior. Almost ways in which we don't think perfectly. Yeah, or we we think differently than the way that economists have modeled us thinking. 
But let's talk about these particular, you know, things that have been found in the lab, particularly by psychologists and economics researchers, I will say. One of them is the endowment effect. So The Economist, uh, published in the UK, recently published an article that surveyed people on how much they were willing to pay for extra leg room on an airplane. So those who didn't have it were only willing to pay $12 on average to get it. But mm. when asked how much they'd need to be paid to give it up, if they already had it, they required an average of $39. So this suggests that we value things more when we already have them than before we have them. And so it's stupid. Well, it's, it's... It makes no sense. It's a way we think about, you know, our environment, perhaps, that's as different from the way that economists have traditionally modeled us. But it can be put to good use to manipulate people. So Professor John List, as it happens, at the University of Chicago, showed recently at the 2017, sorry, 2018 beta conference, so this was something that the, the beta prime minister and cabinet's office was involved in organizing, that performance pay for teachers can be structured in such a way that it works, and then it can also be structured in such a way that it doesn't work. And the key thing to use in designing the structure is this insight about the endowment effect. We went to teachers in September which is the start of the school year in America. And we told them that here is $4,000 and we're looking for you to value add for your students this year. And if you value add at a very high level, you can keep your $4,000 and we might give you more. But we told them if your students do not achieve on that test in June, you might have to give money back. And what we find is that if you do a bonus scheme in the traditional way, it really doesn't work. But if you use the clawback, it works splendidly. <laughs> splendidly. So clawback, you've given it to them and you say, if you don't achieve these particular KPIs, we'll claw it back. Now, maybe but it's exactly the same. It's well, exactly it's the, the same, same amount of money, potentially. But what you're and trying to do is drive behavior, of course. And we might not want to do that with our teachers necessarily. But can you imagine putting that in, you know, private sector compensation packages? Maybe we wouldn't mind that. Too this much. is also called loss aversion or that, that, that that's part of it, which is that uh, uh, some the threat of losing something really gets to us. I think one mm -hmm. estimate I've seen is 10 times as much mm -hmm. as the promise of getting it. Sure. Yeah. And in general framing effects, we've talked about this a bit on past programs, but you know, if I tell you that this yogurt is 90% fat free, you're probably more likely to buy it than if I tell you that it's 10% fat, right? Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. You, you do it with diseases uh, as well. Uh, you've got a... Um, a such and such percent chance of survival, you tell them that, or a such and such percent chance of dying. My, my super fund, um, just the other day, I, I went through um, options for investment, and one of them was 100% high growth. And I thought, well, yep. they could call it 100% high risk. <laughs> <laughs> no, exactly, exactly. And um, actually, there is a generalization here. The general principle is that people tend to overweight low likelihoods and underweight high likelihoods. So actually, I have a recent paper with some co-authors that explored in a lab experiment setting in a kind of complex, sort of real-world-ish kind of environment, whether this was true. And we did find that it was. So basically, if you're told, for example, that one out of 10 people suffers from a particular side effect, then you take that information too seriously. 
quickly. You know, you shy away too much from taking the treatment. But if you're told that 90% of people die if they don't get the treatment, then you don't take that seriously enough, right? You think to yourself, oh, I'm going to be one of the survivors, you know, like I'll be in that that 10% that survives. So, you know, that is a common finding in a lot of lab experiments. As I say, behavioral economics, behavioral science often draws economists and psychologists and, you know, other people interested in human behavior. I got a, a note about a program last week, GG, from someone who said, you've discovered psychology. Congratulations. No, totally. That's, a, that's what uh, you might call it icing on the cake. Some people call it a fundamental change, but economists have been starting to examine how people behave. I mean, we've always examined how people behave, but I think we are starting to not be able to ignore certain features of their behavior that have to do more with psychology than economics. You know, Peter, my my mother was was a psychologist, and she and I had... You suffered for it, too. Well, you know, I took every test known to man. (laughs) Yeah, but as a result, I don't mind now, and I can be under the microscope. My own behavior, you know, I'm happy to talk about it, happy to be analyzed, you know, because any sensitivity about that was sort of, you know, beaten out of Mm. me. But one of the things that it caused me to do as a professional is to understand the relevance of psychology in driving our behavior in in allowing us to get to the best possible situation. So those are two potentially different um, motivations for using behavioral insights. One of them is to try to structure your life and maybe your internal life as well, such that you're more likely to make decisions that are actually in your best interest. Another approach is to try to change settings uh, for, you know, people in general, yourself or others, such that pro-social behaviors, behaviors that are better for the whole society are more likely to emerge. And um, you can see how some of these could, could work both ways. So mm. One of them is the bandwagon effect. Oh, everyone's sure. doing this. That's what ads do, right? Oh, but definitely. The, yeah. The, oh, the look, government could do that. Yeah. Everybody is doing this good thing. So you should too. Or maybe everybody's doing this bad thing. Remember cigarette ads back in the 1970s? They could still I put remember, them in magazines. I got a lifelong fear of moisture under my arm from those TV ads in my youth about <laughs> antiperspirants and people were looking, oh, that's awful. There's nothing awful about it at all. Yeah, I know. It's naturally human, right? Another really common behavioral regularity is cognitive overload. So this idea that if you are presented as a decision maker with too much information, particularly if you're in a time poor mm. environment or you, you sort of don't really have the, the conscious you know, attention available to give to your decision you just won't use all that information. And in fact, having too much information might make you more likely to make a bad choice. So that's you cognitive overload. You suggest, would you, that mobile phone providers and electricity companies do that with complicated plans? Oh, certainly not. No. So, and, so be- and, and, and th- <laughs> this is actually, Gigi, where it gets quite serious because mm. these things can be used for evil as well as good. Certainly. And the government could potentially use that, deliberately complicating things. If you want to be paranoid, sure. But I mean, generally, when we speak about nudging in the government context, what we mean is using these kinds of behavioral insights, which, you know, you might view as sort of applied, pragmatic behavioral insights to design real world settings with the express goal of influencing people's behavior in those settings in a positive direction. Yeah, although, Gigi, not every government, I suppose, is like ours. So we've seen things about... uh, Governments overseas uh, wanting to manipulate the population and manipulate yeah. information. There's always so. that. There's always that pressure, Peter. Right, but this is what democracy is all about. You got to fight back. You're listening to the Economists on RN with Dr. Gigi Foster and me, Peter Martin. Today's topic is nudges, the somewhat 
icky business of prodding us to do what the authorities want. Joining us now is Heather Koching, Senior Advisor in the Prime Minister's Behavioural Economics Team of Australia, or BETA, not the Nudge Unit, which is what the UK calls their analogous group. Heather, you've been listening in. Is Peter on to you guys? Is what you do all about manipulation? It's interesting, actually, your conversation about influencing behaviour. I mean, the reality is that not only governments, but companies, businesses, and frankly, probably your own friends and family have always been in the business of trying to influence your behaviour. And you're right, Gigi, in that what we're really trying to do as you know part of government now is actually seeing how we can use what we know about human behaviour to actually help people make better choices. And sometimes it's about introducing that countervailing power. So talking about big businesses and how well they do these types of things. Sometimes what we've done now is actually try and help make people have those easier choices. So make decisions simpler or make things easier to understand or simplify forms and processes because we know that it's really easy to get cognitively overloaded and have difficulty sort of finding out the right option or the right choice for you. Mm -hmm. So is there actually a difference between, in your mind and in terms of your mission there, between helping somebody to do what he really wants to do versus pushing him in a direction that society in general might value? I'm thinking of, for example, sin taxes. So taxation is a very traditional means of economic manipulation, if you will. I mean, that's, you know, that's a social bad, you might say. Mm. But it could be that, you know, individuals really would like to smoke more. So you're, you're sort of intervening in a way to get better pro-social behavior, but that's not necessarily in the interest of the individual. Do you guys intervene mm. in both ways? Yeah, so that's, I mean, that's a good one in that that particular example has what in economics you'd call a negative externality where part of the reason why government was trying to reduce smoking is because it's not just you and the impact that behaviour has on you, it's mm. actually the negative impact that it has on other people. Mm. But the way that we frequently like to think about it is that people are sometimes irrational, if you like, in that they have a different preference between their present self and their future self. So sometimes we know that, you know, present you likes to have a big meal and skip the gym and just watch TV. But future you knows that you should go to the gym and make a healthy choice and things like that. So mm. frequently in terms of what we'd like to do in influencing behaviour, it's about helping people make that choice that everyone knows is in their long-term interest, but we know people really struggle with in the short term to make those good choices, those good decisions. Mm. So where did the idea come from? Why was Malcolm Trumbull so keen to set this unit up? It probably came out of the UK Behavioural Insights team or Nudge Unit, as they were certainly known, in terms of seeing the impact they were having on public policy around, you know, helping programs be more efficient and effective and helping the government improve programs and save the government money. So they did a really effective trial around, you know, bringing forward people paying their taxes on time. And I think in Australia, we were looking at that and having the same kind of ideas that what behavioural economics can do is bring a more realistic picture of human behaviour to public policy and sometimes do in a way which is much more cost effective or much easier to do than what the traditional tools might have mean in terms of regulation or taxes or things like that. And some of these things are just simple, like getting people to put in their tax returns. Do you have an SMS or... 
Yeah, and so this is the funny thing that, you know, it kind of seems really simple, but we increasingly see is really effective is things like timely reminders. So if you're cognitively overloaded, it's really hard every day just to remember to do all those things. And so we've seen both in our uh, team's work and overseas that introducing a timely reminder like a text message, and we did one where we worked with Centrelink to encourage people to report their income fortnightly on time. So just introducing a little text message reminder made sure that you know there was a big increase in people who actually reported on time which they would have wanted to do anyway but they might get busy they might plan to do it they might get distracted by something else and this actually helps them you know keep on track with what they'd plan to do to begin with how do you figure out whether something's likely to work do you actually engage in some sort of scientific testing of Mm -hmm. a particular intervention before you put it in the field Yeah, so the field has been really strong in terms of coming from this empirical perspective that actually tests what works. And there's lots and lots of studies that we draw from and that we contribute to by doing our own kind of tests. And so really what we're interested in is actually measuring behaviour and looking at the evidence for what actually works. So you try in different towns, you try one thing for one group of people, another thing for another or? Well, what we typically do is we'd take, so a sample of the population based on, you know, something where a program's happening already is something like that. So we typically run a randomised control trial where one group gets business as usual. So they're called our control, which is just what we were doing anyway, how the program was normally working. And then we'd run one or more series of what we call interventions, which is where we introduce different types of nudges. And then we actually measure the impact on behaviour. And this is really important for us because in the real world, there's so much going on that it's really hard to separate out the impact of what we might be doing from everything else that's in the environment. And this randomised control trial design actually allows you to measure the impact of what we did in our interventions versus what the control group just would have done anyway. So can you give us an example of something that you've achieved, you know, that's, that's really delivered a lot of benefits for Australia as a whole based on just a simple nudge? Yeah, so one we released earlier this year is actually a trial where we looked at tackling this really big public policy problem of antimicrobial resistance. And this is a big problem because we know that drugs are working less effectively than they used to be. It's just doctors over-prescribing antibiotics. Yeah, I mean, it's just difficult to discover new drugs now. And yes, they have a less uh, effective impact on treating infections than they used to. And so what could we actually do to tackle this problem? And so what we did as a trial where we worked with the Department of Health and the Australia's Chief Medical Officer to actually write a letter to the top 30% of doctors with the highest prescribing rates. And so we gave them information they didn't have before, which was a peer comparison that said, did you know compared to your peer group, so other doctors in your area, you're in the top 30% of prescribers. Hmm. This is information they didn't have previously. And it just encouraged them to reflect on their behaviour and whether or not they were making the right choice in terms of whether or not they were offering a prescription. Mm -hmm. And the best thing was that we saw a 12.3% reduction in prescription rates following that trial. So how many how many scripts is that fewer for the Australia as a whole? Or do you Just have for the sample it worked out to be around hundred and twenty thousand less scripts as Whoa. a result of the trial. Wow. Not by doing anything other than telling them how they were prescribing compared to others. Exactly right. You've tried doing this for electricity 
consumption, telling people what their neighbours are doing, and initially it didn't go so well, right? Well, this was a trial which was actually done in the US, and this is how important it is to, first of all, test things, and second of all, really understand how social norms work. So this was a study where, so households had their electricity usage measured, and then they got a little report that told them how they compared to the average. So their usage, the average usage. And for those that were above average, we saw that those people actually reduced their behaviour because they were getting a little nudge that's saying, hi, you're an above average user, maybe you could cut back. But it also introduced this interesting backfire effect where those who were below average got that information that they were below average and then they increased their consumption. <laughs> <by> the <way>. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what did they do then? Did they, I mean, one thing to do would have been not to have sent those letters to the people who were below average, mm. which is yeah. quite manipulative, really. Well, I mean, this is why we did in our trial, why we focused it on the top 30% of doctors, yeah. because right. we know that they can backfire. But the US study, they then did something else. And this is the difference between the first type of norm, which is a descriptive norm, which actually I think of it as the numbers one that says it's X percent or it's this many people did it. And they flipped it to also add an injunctive norm. And the injunctive norm is just a fancy term for saying rather than statistically telling people what the right thing is to do, you actually just invoke their moral sense about what's right. You give them that signal about what society expects is the good thing. Mm. And so the simple little tweak they did is when you're a below average user, then they put a smiley face on your report as well. <laughs> and what you happened? Feel good. <laughs> what happened as a result of the smiley face? Well, that was enough to actually stop this backfire effect from occurring. So that was enough for people to say, "Oh, well, I'm I'm below average, so maybe I can increase." To saying below average is the right thing. You know, my little report gives me a smiley face, so I'm going to keep sticking with that wow, behaviour. Amazing how manipulable we are. Right? <laughs> so, so I have I have a question for you, Heather. That's a little thorny. So if let's say that a nudge pushes people towards something like let's take an example of putting more money in a retirement savings scheme if, if we think that's a you know something that is good for people because we want to make sure they don't you know struggle financially when they're retired there's a foregone thing that could have been bought with that money the person is giving up when they put the, the money into mm. the retirement savings scheme so how do we know that that other thing wouldn't have actually have been better for the person I mean I'm thinking about someone who's poor you know maybe on a barely living wage and you know they're nudged in to participating in a program for later savings. And, you know, that means that today they can't have heat in their home or they, or they mm. can't feed their kids or something. I mean, is there a danger with some of these nudges that we're not seeing the full effect of, you know, the behavioral change? Yeah, well, it's a really great question. And this is why nudges really work best when the majority of people agree it's the right thing to do. So when mm. we already know that saving is in most of our best interests. But it's also the reason why it's really important to carefully design them. So in this case, it would be about what is the right kind of percentage to actually allocate to savings. But the most important thing to remember is that by and large, nudges work by not changing the choices that are available to you, but just making it easier to make the choice that we think you'd want to make. Is it also the case that you can't not do a nudge. So the classic nudge is, uh, where's the junk snack food machine? You know, is it so many metres further away from your desk around a corner or is it next to your desk? You can't not make such a decision. You have to decide to put it somewhere or, or to put it outside of the building altogether. It's almost as if the government is nudging people if it makes it difficult to report your income on time by not having an SMS. That's a nudge, right? Yeah, I think that's totally true. And you're absolutely right in that every day, I mean, the fancy word we, we use for this is choice architecture, but every day you'll be encouraged to park in a different spot, drive at a certain speed, you know, make a choice for lunch. And often encouraged at random. 
Oh, totally, yeah. And because no of- one's thought about the architecture, choice architecture. Mm, exactly. And we know that a lot of that from the government's perspective might unnecessarily be making choices harder or making decisions more complicated. And so we've spent a lot of time thinking about how to make things easier, how to make them simpler for people to actually do what they want to do. So on that theme, so one of the examples I know that we've spoken before about, Heather, is your provision of a best practice sort of guide for mm. providers of internet services where it's easy for consumers to compare across plans because the different providers are using the same template to provide the information, therefore reducing complexity and and hopefully making it more palatable for the consumer to engage in the process of comparisons and then to, to change to the thing that is most in their interests. It's is, not in the NBN provider's interest. Well, is it? I mean, obviously, they're, they're playing ball, right, Heather? Yeah, they are. So this one was, it started from conversations with the Australian Communications and Media Authority, which regulates this sector. And they were getting a lot of complaints about how difficult it was for people to choose the right MBN plan. And part of this happens because this is a really complicated market where there's heaps of different plans out there and there's lots of different information available. And we know people find it really hard to sort through all of that information and make the right choice. They're a cognitive overload. And so we looked at what is the really key important information that people use to make that decision and how can we present it in a way which is actually more effective. And so we designed this kind of one-page key fact sheet which used things like horizontal comparisons, clear white space, you know, just distilling it down to the simple facts so that we could make it easier for people to compare. And the thing that happens is if you get a bunch of these from different companies in the same format, side by side it's much easier to compare and contrast the features that you want as opposed to wading through all this dense information. So this really Actually doing it, yeah, yeah, they are. I, I suppose it's if, if one or two start doing it, then that adds to the argument for the others because someone using the compare won't use a complicated plan. Well, that's the really interesting thing is, you know, we released this guide a couple of months ago and I think there's already around 10 or 20 firms that are doing this. And the thing now that could happen is we didn't regulate this, right? We just put out a suggestion that this was a better practice way to do it, that it would actually reduce consumer frustration if firms made it easier to set out what their plans did. So this reminds me of this year's Nudgeathon theme, the consumer data right, which is coming into play in Australia. Australia this year in the financial services sector uh, essentially allows consumers to decide whether the data that companies have been collecting on their financial decision making can be uh, shared with other possible providers. So if you bank at NAB, for example, then the data that NAB have on your financial decision making um, every day can be shared with you know all the other banks in Australia, and then you can potentially choose a better, say, credit card or savings account or term deposit or or whatever mortgage that suits your interests. So this was the you know the issue, the policy issue that motivated this year's Nudgeathon. And theme. both of you were judges. We were of, of those uh, solutions. And Heather uh, can <laughs> can speak to maybe the solutions that were offered mm-hmm. and that were recently presented to government as options for actually designing this the approach that the government takes. So student teams were asked to think of one of two kind of problems in tackling this issue of the consumer data, right? And the first one, which is really important, is how do we deal with the privacy implications? So this is an opt-in, right, in that 
you have to agree to share your data. This is not something which the company can agree to share without your permission. You have to decide if you want to share it. But how do you understand those privacy implications and whether or not it's the right choice for you? Because we know on lots of these apps and web services and things like that, people agree to terms and conditions and they don't actually read them. So this is an important behavioural problem is how can we actually get people to really understand that choice? And so the teams came up with these great ideas with things like that you might have to do a little multi-choice quiz and answer two questions that actually, you know, if you got the right answer, then you could opt in. Or things like that when you first sign up, you don't really know what you're signing up for. So maybe you sign up and then after you've used the functionality for a week, maybe then you're prompted to reflect on the privacy implications. All sorts of really cool ideas like that. So it sounds like we're nudging towards a better marketplace. And I'm feeling better about it now. <laughs> Good. I'm so glad, Peter. Don't mind being manipulated so much now, huh? If you know it's in your best interest. Well, I think what's really interesting is that this is being discovered, and uh, you know, and the Nudgeathon developed in uh, exciting new ways. But there's a lot of people who must have instinctively known all of these things for ages because mm. we have been very successfully manipulated for a long time. Well, now the government is doing it, and possibly we can trust them a little more, trust them more than marketers. Maybe. I think it's just time for you to, to, to read the next. <laughs> yes, I know. Our guest has been Heather Koching, Senior Advisor in the Prime Minister's Behavioural Economics Team of Australia, or BETA. Thanks for joining us, Heather. Thank you. We'll put links related to nudging on our website. That's The Economists at ABCRN. That's also where you can send us comments or questions or even ideas for programs. Next week on The Economist with me, Peter Martin and Dr. Gigi Foster, perhaps one of your suggestions. Goodbye to them. Goodbye. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.